You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and find verse 6 with me. We're going to be in verses 6 through 7 this morning. And so I know that last week we were mainly in verse 24. We're not skipping over all the verses in between. Uh, but really, all that, that those say culminate in verse 6 and 7, and really where the book goes for the rest of the book is, is set up in 6 and 7. As you're turning there, if you're a guest here, my name is Jamin. I am one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church, and we're so thrilled that you're here. You have caught us in uh, the middle of a sermon series in the book of Colossians. And so, uh, really, from here, we are just now three months in, um, we are just now getting to the point of Paul writing the book. So we're really just now into uh, what is the main body of the book. And what we'll see is that most of the rest of the book of Colossians is God through Paul giving us a picture of what the Christian life is to look like and mainly um, spelling out for us a portrait of Christian identity. We could say it like this, if um, last week was us asking the question, what do you believe about your pain? This week and the next several weeks is us asking the question, what do you believe about you? Who are you? Uh, What's the story you believe about yourself? What is your identity? How do you answer that? Who gets to answer that? And uh, really, six and seven kicks that off. And so when I was 13, uh, my family moved from Duncanville, Texas to Fairfield, Texas. And those two cities could not be uh, any more different. Duncanville uh, is uh, in DFW. Uh, Fairfield is 90 miles south of Dallas on I-45. And so, uh, you know, Duncanville is right in the middle of the Metroplex. It's off I-20, if you know that area. It really goes DeSoto, Duncanville, Grand Prairie, Arlington, and, and all of those cities really run together. And so to say that you're from Duncanville is really to just be from Dallas. It's to be from uh, DFW. In fact, when I was there uh, in Duncanville, their high school, it was the largest 5A high school in the state of Texas. And so it was, it was massive. It was a large school district. It was a large city. Uh, Fairfield is uh, not that. In fact, most people don't call Fairfield a city, they call Fairfield a town, because calling it a city just doesn't feel honest. Uh, If you have been in Fairfield, it is most likely because you stopped at a Love's off I-45 on your way to Houston. Uh, To to highlight the difference between the two places, my graduating class was 97 kids. And I'm not knocking it, I'm really not. I, I appreciated small town Texas. There are things about how small it was and how slow it was, the pace of life uh, that, I really, that I really missed. But to be 13 years old and to move there uh, was just this very jarring difference in culture. And, and so there were things that were just uh, very, very foreign to me. I remember one of my very first friends, um, he asked me within a month of getting there, he said, hey, do you want to make some money hauling hay? And he said, would you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, I had no idea what that meant. My only experience with hay up to that point was that my mom would get a little bit of it from Kroger to decorate for Thanksgiving every year. And so I was like, yeah, I love hay. I'll, I'll go. And so what I discovered starting at 7 in the morning is that hauling hay bales means you are picking up these 60 to 80 pound bales, square bales of hay, throwing them into the back of a truck or trailer while that truck or trailer just continues to move. 
And so you are doing that, and if it passes you, you have to catch up to it with the hay that you're supposed to throw in there. And it's awful. They're heavy. It's itchy. We did that for nine hours. It was June in Texas, so it was 175 degrees outside, and it was terrible. Never experienced that in Duncanville. Also, that friend of mine, he was really into this band I had never heard of called Rascal Flats, and that's what he made us listen to all day, which was worse than the hay. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. What sticks out most, though, was not all the jarring change. What sticks out most was, and what I've come to learn, is it's not something that was uh, an unusual experience. What sticks out most is it was my first time that I could really articulate or feel the pressure to become something or to recreate myself so that I could make it in a new place. So here's how that worked. We moved the summer before eighth grade. It's a small town in small town, Texas. Everybody knows everything about everybody. And especially if your dad's the new preacher of the big Baptist church in town. And so I had a lot of people coming up and kind of giving advice of who I needed to be and what it would look like to be able to fit in in this new place. And most of it was well-meaning. People would come up and say, okay, this, these are the people that you need to hang out with and these are the people that you don't. And these are the places where you need to hang out, and these are the places where you don't. And these are the things that you need to do and be involved in, and these are the things that you don't need to do or be involved in. In fact, I had a, a, a guy in our church, he was a coach at the high school, he coached football at the high school, and he came up to me and he said, hey, do you play football? And I said, no. And he said, well, what are you into? And I was like, I don't know, I, I hate hay, I know that. <laughs> Recently learned that. And he said, well, listen, son, if you don't play football in this town, you won't have any friends. Now, that might sound like a threat. It wasn't. He was just being honest. Like, it was the most Texas forever Texas town there was. And he was just saying, if you want to have friends here, you have to play football. So I signed up for football. And, and it felt like in that time, I just remember feeling like every decision was important, and every relationship I made was important, and everything I said yes to, and the things I said no to, those were important. And, and I was a believer already, so I knew that my Christianity kind of fit in somewhere, but I wasn't really sure where. And so if I would, you know, looking back reflectively, if I were to put kind of an idea that hovered over my life, it was this. If you're going to make it... You have to figure out who you are, and you have to construct this identity, uh, and that identity either will or won't carry you through this new world that you're in. Now, what I know now that I didn't know then is that that's all of life. That's all of life. All of life is answering the who am I question, and it goes the same. If you're going to make it in this life, figure out who you want to be. And answer that question, begin to construct an identity around that with your relationships and what you pursue and what you're gifted at and what you uh, excel in and then mix into that what you hope your life looks like a year from now or what you hope your life looks like five years from now or what you hope your life looks like 10 years from now. And, and so whatever the arc of your life is, if we could have the conversation in a way that we're both being honest, that arc has been driven in so many ways by how you've answered the who am I question or it has been driven by a search for answers to that question. Here's what I want us to know. It's not the wrong question. It's actually the right question. There are a lot of wrong answers, but it's not the wrong question. There's a New Testament scholar, theologian named Klein Snodgrass, strong last name. He wrote a book called Who God Says You Are, and in that book he says this, there is only one question. Who are you? Everything else in life flows from that one question. That is true whether you're a person of faith or not. The identity question is the question. In fact, every religion, every denial of religion, 
Every philosophy or ideology seeks to tell people who they are, how they fit with the reality around them, and how they should then live. If your life has any meaning, it will be because you have a meaningful identity. He'll go on to say in that same chapter, all of life is identity construction. The question then, it's not if we're constructing identity. All of us are constructing an identity. The question is, is the identity you're constructing a meaningful one? And that, that's a hard question to answer, right? If you think about it, who are you? What is true about you? What defines you? It's a hard question to answer, especially now. And look, I, I have personally, just transparently, I have spent the larger portion of my life answering that question poorly. You know, in, in, in a lot of projecting of who I want to be and a lot of people pleasing and, and mostly just a lot of not knowing where to begin. And I've found that's a really common story around this question, that many people are investing tons of energy and effort constructing an identity, and yet the further they get into the project, the less they actually know about themselves. A lot of energy and effort constructing an identity, and the further they get into that project, the further they get from who they actually want to be. And there's a easy to feel lost in it and easy to have more questions than answers. And so much of that is because when we begin to construct that, we do so through our own eyes. And our own eyes are often the ones that, are, that see ourselves the least clearly. Here's how Blaise Pascal says it. Our own interest is the perfect instrument for putting out our own eyes. Self-interest is always accompanied by being blinded to our self-awareness. And so if it's an important question, uh, and if it's, if the point of life is identity construction, and we're all doing it, and yet our eyes on ourselves are often the ones that are the least clear, then that means we need other voices to help shape this. It means we need other voices to help answer this. And so who gets to say who gets to answer? Who gets the first and who gets the final answer? Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the hinge of the book. This is where the book begins to turn, and it summarizes in verse 6 and 7 everything that's going to come after. And if you remember with me the context, what's going on for this church is they are feeling cultural pressure. They're feeling cultural pressure from the Roman Empire. They're feeling cultural pressure from all of these other religious beliefs and all these other belief systems and ideologies, and that pressure is an amounting to pull away from Jesus or add to the work of Jesus. And so they're asking of Paul really of God. How are we going to make it? How are we going to make it as new Christians in a new church in this world that's around us amidst all the confusion and all the messages? And the answer that they get, starting in verse 6, moving through the rest of the book, is this. You'll make it if you know who you are. You'll make it if you answer that who am I question rightly, correctly. We named this series Life in Christ for this very reason. Because most of the book is God through Paul inviting this church, inviting our church, inviting you as a Christian into life with Jesus, which means we find all of our identity questions answered in him. So let me say it clearly. Who am I? I am who God in Christ says that I am. We'll unpack that. Six, seven, two short verses will take each phrase in turn. He starts by saying this. 
Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, could also be read as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. He's beginning to paint this picture of who they are, what's true about them, and he starts by saying this, when it comes to knowing who you are, the most important question is actually not who am I. The most important question you'll answer is who is Jesus? Because how you answer that question reveals both what you believe about Jesus and what you believe about yourself. He says, as you received Christ as Lord, right before this, there's a word, therefore. And what it means is it means that this short phrase holds everything that he said so far. And so everything that it took us about two months to walk through in chapter one, he says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. And that title holds all that he has said. So Lord of what? Well, Lord of creation. Image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, the one who's behind all that is, the one who holds together all that is, the one who is the point of all there is, right? He perfectly reflects uh, God. Everything that's true about the Father is true about the Son. He's also Lord of new creation. He says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's the very first one of a new race of people who will live forever. And he is the head of the church, the Lord over every denomination that is, the Lord over every uh, group of Christians, from those who were commissioned by him 2,000 years ago to the few hundred of us sitting in this room right now. He is Lord of creation and Lord of new creation, Lord of his people. And what he said is that that Lord uh, redeemed you, rescued you, transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of new creation, and he reconciled you in his death. And he's been saying these things about Jesus, that they are, they are these objective realities about his lordship. These things are objectively true about what Jesus, what it means for Jesus to be Lord. And then what you see, there's a shift here. There's something that changes. The language gets very personal. It moves from objective realities to what is possessive. You received him as Lord. It's personal. Here's what I mean. Uh, Paul writes a lot about Jesus. When Paul writes about Jesus, he usually uses the words Christ and Jesus and Lord. This is the only time he uses them in this order. Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ Jesus as Lord. And it makes a life-changing point. What has been these objective realities, Jesus, Lord over creation, Lord over new creation, and you received him. Don't miss this. He is not just Lord over all of this. He is my Lord. This statement about Jesus is the starting place for knowing who you are. If you get him wrong, you get yourself wrong every single time. Tied up in what we believe about Jesus is what we believe about ourselves. And, and if you'll go here with me, friends... Here is where it breaks down in a religious culture like ours, where church attendance is still somewhat of a cultural norm that's becoming less and less true, but it's still real. For many, that statement about Jesus being Lord is only objective and it's never possessive. Uh, he is Lord objectively, and I won't deny that, but that never moves to he is my Lord. And so I can attend church for years, never denying that he is Lord, but also never believing that he is my Lord. And so I never learned to deny myself and confess my needs. And it reveals that I actually don't know who I am, because if I knew me, I would know that I need him. We talk about Jesus as Lord in the same way that we might acknowledge that someone is a doctor, 
Meaning, I can say about someone, this man, this woman is a doctor, and I can know that to be objectively true about a title they hold and a function that they perform. But if I just objectively say this is a doctor, I have only said something about them, and I haven't said anything about me. And I can objectively say about their doctor, and I can know what that means. I can be impressed with what they do, and I can know the education that they had to have, and I can know that they, they help people, which is really remarkable and admirable. But objectively, I am only saying something about them. But the moment it becomes possessive, the moment that I say, this person, this man, this woman is my doctor, I have said something both about them and about me. What I've said about me is I have said about me that I'm not immortal. I've said about me that I get sick. I have been sick. Maybe right now I am sick. Maybe one day in the future I will be sick. And it's in the possession that I am saying and admitting and confessing something that is true about me. And the great tragedy of the religious culture that we live in is droves and droves of people who believe things about Jesus subjectively that they never possess. Believe things about Jesus that they can assent to intellectually, but it's done nothing to change their life because it is only in the turn from him being Lord of creation, Lord of the church, to him being Lord of my life that I am changed. Christ Jesus is my Lord. It says something about him and says something about me. Christ Jesus is my Lord. It says about me that I'm not in control of my life. That left to myself, I'll make a mess of things. But I have found in Jesus, the one who holds the stars in the sky, the one who's sovereign over all my days. I can trust him. He tells me how to live and he's never wrong. It says something about him and something about me. Christ Jesus is my Lord, says about me that I need a savior. That sin in my heart has stained my life and left me exposed, but I have found in Jesus one who can wash me whiter than snow and cover me with his righteous love by the blood he shed on my behalf. Christ Jesus is my Lord. And that says about me that I don't know how to pick up the pieces of my life or pick up the pieces of my past or how to deal with my wounds and left to myself, I'm given over to worry and anxiety and shame and the ache of feeling like I've never enough, but I have found in Jesus my Lord, one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will lift a burden that's heavy, and I will replace it with one that is light because I am gentle. I, as your Lord, am kinder to you than you are to yourself. Christ Jesus is my Lord, says that I was made to worship something that's greater than me, and when I try to satisfy that in things that are not God, it compounds misery with more misery, but I have found in Jesus one who is worthy to receive my worship and one who is wonderful enough to satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. Christ Jesus is my Lord. And what that says about me is that death was my future, the penalty for my sin. But I have found in Jesus one who is stronger than death, one who has stolen victory from sin and robbed death of its sting. And he says about me that death does not get the last word. The resurrected Jesus speaks over my life that death is not my end and there is no power in hell that can shut his mouth. Christ Jesus is my Lord. Is he yours? If he's not, not only do you not know him, you don't know you. If he is, if Christ Jesus is your Lord, your Savior, the ultimate purpose behind your existence and source of your life, by that confession, you are changed. And who you are is changed. 
And it is upon that confession, who he is to you, who you are to him, that becomes the foundation for your identity. That's why Paul goes on and says this. Rooted and built up in him. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, verse 6, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. He says this, walk in him. It's interesting language. He doesn't say walk with him. He says walk in him. He's trying to highlight this reality. He's launching into this beautiful theology of union with Christ that carries through the rest of the book. And how he launches into that theology of union with Christ is by mixing these two metaphors. One is an agricultural metaphor. He says you are rooted in him like a tree that gets life through its roots. You, Christian, get your life and your purpose and your sustenance from Jesus. Before Jesus, we are all dead in sin, made for the soil of Christ, but cut off by our own hands. And when we become believers, when we confess Christ Jesus is my Lord. We are lifted from death to life and planted in Christ, rooted in him, alive in him. It's the foundation for who you are. And then he says we are built up in him. He moves from an agricultural metaphor, trees and roots, to an engineering metaphor, buildings and foundations. Our life is constructed on Jesus. If uh, rooted in him means he's the source of light, built up in him means he is the very base and foundation for everything else in our life. It all stands on Jesus. It's like we sing on Christ, the solid rock. The language of in Christness just litters the letter. What we're going to see as we move through the letter, the rest of two, three, and four, what we're going to see is he always comes back to this. Even when he starts talking about how we should live, when he starts talking about our roles, that will be littered with this in Christ language. He's going to say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's already said that. He'll go on to say that in him you are filled. You're baptized in him. You're raised with him. You will appear with him in glory. All of life then is about being in Christ. If I could, because I want to take what could be uh, very ethereal and make it immensely practical, let me forecast a bit into the rest of the book and offer a picture of what this means, because he actually expects of me and of you that who we are grows out of and on top of who we are in Christ. Chapter 2 is our in Christness. Chapter 3, we'll start talking about character. And then end of 3, 4, he starts talking about who you are as a parent and who you are as a husband, who you are as a wife, who you are as a worker, whatever you do in word or deed. So let me, uh, vi- let me help us visualize that. From that, here's the picture of who God says that you are. Identity in Christ, rooted in him, founded in him. On top of that, when we get into chapter 3, what we see is that it's out of our in-Christness that we develop character. So he'll say patient and loving and kind. And why we use the word character and not behavior is because character, what he means by character, when, when God begins to articulate and lay out how he expects us to change, it's not changing just what we do, but changes who we are, that we actually, because of our in Christness, become loving people. That we actually, in our in Christness, not, don't just become people who sometimes are patient, right? But we become people who are defined by patience. And then, out of that character, only after the character, he'll start talking about the roles God has entrusted to you. 
And he'll start talking about who you are in your home and who you are in your workplace. But here's what I hope that we see, that everything that comes out of our life, everything that is part of our life, everything that marks our life is to grow out of our in Christness, which then changes who we are in our character, in our hearts, which then leads to flourishing in every other part of our life in our roles, right? And if you think about this, there is something about it that's just intuitive. Like if you have tried to be any of these roles, uh, parent or spouse or worker or, or just exist in anything that God has entrusted you with, you know that without character, it's impossible to be the kinds of things that you want to be. It's impossible to be the kind of spouse you want to be or the kind of parent that you want to be. And so the picture, the construction of who you are that God gives us in his word is that you are in Christ. And then on top of that, in your in Christness develops this character. And that character comes all at once, right? No, it's a process and there's failure. But in the failure, you're standing on your in Christness. And so you are already working to become who God has called you to be from a place of victory and acceptance, not for it. Now, this is not an exhaustive picture of who you are. Just want to acknowledge that. Like, you could look at this and you could say, um, for instance, well, what about my ethnicity? Isn't that a huge part of who I am? Yes, absolutely. Okay, what about my gender? Isn't that a huge part of who I am? Yes. What about my story, the way I was raised, my family dynamic, the suffering I have been through, even the gifts that God has given me? What about those? Or what about my, my unique wiring that all of those tests out there are so eager, eager to help us understand about us, right? And it's like those things, isn't that true? Isn't that part of who I am? Yes, absolutely. It's important. Here's what we have to see from God about us. None of those things are the identity from which we draw life. None of those things are the identity from which we construct the rest of our life. The Bible will never, it will never say about you that you're rooted in any of that. No, that you're rooted in Christ. The Bible, being in Christ, the Bible's going to say, God's going to say about us, being in Christ is most essential to who you are. Not what you look like, not where you're from, not what has happened to you. That is part of who you are, but it is ultimately informed and shaped and seen rightly only when your starting place is who I am in Jesus. Because without that, we will look at those other parts of who we are and we will turn identity into idolatry, which is the very thing that plagues our society right now. If I try and make my role as a husband or a father or my race or my gender or my gifts the ultimate source of who I am, I will idolize what is not God and I will become less than who he has made me to be. But the life that is built on who I am in Christ, if, if my foundational identity is who I am in Jesus, the life I construct will be inescapably Christ-centered and not self centered. And out of that, I will actually flourish in all those other things that are part of me. I, out of that, I will flourish in who God's called me to be uh, in, in my roles as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, right? And it's not going to make things like my history or my ethnicity or my experience. It doesn't make those things disappear. It reorients them around Jesus as the one in whom I see myself most clearly. And that's going to lead to a life that is growing more stable, 
and that is filled with thanksgiving. That's how he ends verse 7, that you would be built up in Christ, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That life grows as it grows in confidence in Jesus. The life grows more stable, and then out of that life, it is filled with gratitude. Why? Because if my identity is in Jesus first and foremost, who I am is not based on what I've earned, but what I've been given. All of my life is founded on the gift of grace. And if all of my life is founded on the gift of grace, it will perpetuate gratitude in my life. Now, if we could just pause for a second. And what I would like to do is tease or introduce what we're going to talk about together with this for the next few weeks, because as we go to see this life constructed, there is a life that needs to be deconstructed, that influences all of us. What makes this hard to live out is that we are conditioned, conditioned to define ourselves by what we have and what we do. Not who we are in Jesus, but define ourselves by what we have and what we do. And really the question we so often ask is not who am I. The question we so often ask is how do I want to be perceived? Carrie and I took Asher, our oldest, to breakfast a few weeks ago. And while we were waiting on the food, he took the kid's menu. He turned it over to where it was just a blank piece of paper and he wanted to play tic-tac-toe. And so after I defeated him several times... Uh, he got bored, and he asked, Dad, when you were a kid, what games did you guys used to play when you got bored? And I immediately thought, oh, we used to play this game called MASH. <laughs> Mansion, apartment, shack, house. Some of you are deep in nostalgia right now. And so how that worked is uh, it basically was this game that helped you figure out your future. And at the very top category was what, what kind of house you're going to live in, a mansion, an apartment, a shack, or a house. And then you filled in the other categories. And the way I remember playing is uh, the job that you were going to have, the car you were going to drive, and the person you were going to marry. And so I explained that to Asher, and he wanted to play. Uh, and we didn't do the, the person you wanted to marry, just didn't want to get into that. And so we just said, okay, where, where would you want to live? And, and what I remember about it is that you always had at least one option that you didn't want, right? So if it was like, the, you know, obviously the thing you don't want to live in is the shack. And then when you're doing your cars, you pick a car that you don't want to drive. When you're doing your jobs, you pick a job that, that you would hate. Like, um, well, I don't actually know what all you do, so I'm not going to answer that. Uh, <laughs> So he wanted to play. So he played, and at the end of it, uh, here's what his future held. One day, he would be a movie director living in an apartment in England, driving a minivan, <laughs> which was not his choice. It was a very weird experience for me, sitting at first watch in Plano, watching him do that. Here's why. I, I winced a bit watching him think through his future like that, because what I know to be true is that he is going to grow up in the pool of his life is going to be to look at the answers to those kinds of questions and think, this is what makes me matter. This is what gives significance. And I just remember thinking, I just don't care for my son. I don't care. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't care what he drives. I don't care what job he has. I, I don't want him to live in England, obviously, but I want him closer than that. But those things, they're important. They're important. I, I care. But they're not most important. Like, 
I care far more about his character. I care far more that he knows who he is in Christ. I care far more that he lives out of his baptism from two and a half years ago than that he lives for some sort of something someday, right? Like if I had to pick, I would rather he live in a shack and love Jesus than in a mansion and believe he's God. And I know it's just a game. I get it. But in our culture, that is the currency of identity. That's identity's currency. How you and I are conditioned to most naturally answer the who am I question is by looking at what I have and looking at what I do and thinking about that, that that's what makes me who I am. And so look, uh, I understand that that is, uh, well, let me put it this way, you never play that game alone. Do you notice that? You always play that game with other people and hope that at the end, your future is something that everyone else envies. So what I have and what I do and whoever's sitting across from me is impressed. It's always a game that you play where someone else is offering affirmation. Someone else is offering that they're impressed. Someone else is offering that they covet what you have. And I know it's just a game and it went out of fashion a long time ago, but I see a culture of people still playing it as adults. And for many, that's as deep as the who am I question ever goes. And here's what I'd argue. What I'd argue is that those things are far more about image than they are identity. That for many, life is not about constructing a meaningful identity as much as it is about managing an image. Identity is internal and it's substantive. It's who you are. Image is external. It's how you want to be perceived, mostly disconnected from who you are. Klein Snodgrass says it like this, image is not identity. Image is what we project to others, what we put on display, and is an attempt to show how we would like to be seen, which may have little to do with who we really are. Our society spends billions on image and gives little real attention to identity when tragedy comes and strips away possessions and appearances. Who are we then? Or who are we when we really face ourselves without our props? If it's going to be meaningful at all to see how the Bible constructs the identity of who we are, we are going to have to, at the same time, see how the Bible will tear down and deconstruct who we're not called to be or who we're not called to try to be. So here's what a life of image management looks like. Starting at the top, is instead of beginning at the bottom, I start at the very top and I want a projection of what my life is to be. So what my life is rooted and founded on is who I am and what I do. And I need who I am and what I do to one day amount to this image that I'm trying to project. And if I can get people to believe that that's who I am now, great. If I can't, then I can dig even deeper into who I am and deeper into what I do and try to craft that image that other people will see and that other people will Accept. And so who I am and what I do, that can be my possessions, that can be my gifts, that can be the relationships that I have, but ultimately I'm needing to draw on those things to then throw out and present out to the world this image of how I want to be encountered or who I hope to be. And in the middle, you don't have character, you just have rules. The rules that set the boundaries of my life. And the, what I mean by rules instead of character is rules are the things in your life that can shape what you do and don't do without actually changing who you are. The rules only exist to serve the image. 
The rules are things that I abide by because I believe that they will help me in my project of image management. So maybe those are rules of how I do and don't look when I leave the house. Maybe to make it incredibly practical, it means that some of you here right now are in church because the image you want to project is someone who is religious and one of your rules is that I go to church. And here's what could be true. You can attend church to keep the rules for years without actually becoming like Jesus if it only serves to protect an image and it doesn't grow out of an identity of being in Christ. And here's the difference. The the most important difference between character that grows out of relationship with Christ and rules that help manage an image is that character is who you are or at least who you're becoming all the time. Rules change based on who is around. And rules especially change when no one is around. Because this life of carrying this image, this life of image projection, this life of image management is exhausting. And when it's just me, I want to escape the pressure of keeping up the image. And most of us escape by breaking all of our rules. Because no one can see. If we continue in a meaningful way to see how the Bible will construct our identity, my prayer is at the same time the Bible would tear down the image and would bring freedom in our life because where the life in Christ is marked by confidence and thanksgiving, the life of image management is marked by anxiety and fear and doubt and insecurity because if I'm drawing life from myself, from what I have and what I do, and it's my profession, my possessions and my performance that I'm drawing life from, those things make such an awful foundation for life. Those things provide such a shallow place for my life to be rooted because there's not enough soil and I am too fragile and I am not perfect and I'm not all powerful and I can't cover over all my own failures and I can't satisfy my own desires. And if we could distill all of that down into one confession, it's this, I cannot be Lord of my own life. Which brings us back to our question. Who is Jesus to you? Because if Jesus is Christ Jesus, my Lord, the one to whom we surrender. He is going to pull us away from the image we're trying to earn, and he will breathe life into our lives from an identity that he has given. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. I thank you, Christ Jesus, that you're my Lord. I thank you that you, Christ Jesus, are the Lord of Citizens Church. I thank you that I can look out at so many faces I know and stories I know and believe confidently that your mercy, your grace, your rule, your power has fallen and settled into our lives in a way that is forming and shaping who we are because of who we are in you. I pray for the one God. If they're here, you know, and I don't, and I don't want to assume. But I pray for the one, if they're here, who has only ever existed in relationship with you based on objective realities that they don't deny, but that has never moved to a confession of who you are to them that they possess, that's shaping all of who they are. And I pray that in this moment, by your spirit, you would push through the boundaries 
and you would quicken a dead heart to life, that you would change in a moment, that you would bring one from death to life, that you would bring one from shriveling to planted deeply in you, Jesus, that leads to thriving and fruit and real life change. Would you do it, God, because you're kind? We love you. Hear me pray. Amen.